0: Amen. So we are going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today. We're going to continue with our sermon series that just continues to unpack for us. And it's been a good chapter. It's been a chapter that has allowed us to see some things that maybe we haven't seen in the past of how we should have childlike faith. And I mean, that was the first part of this sermon series, the first part of Matthew 18. It talks about a lot of having a childlike faith and that that is a mature faith for us. And then he talked about, hey, let's not be a stumbling block to that. Let's not stand in the way of that. Let's make sure that we foster that and encourage that. In fact, some of us that are complacent Christians need to get back to our first love and be reminded of that joy and that fervor and that excitement of being a believer. And then last week we talked about the lost sheep and how important that one sheep is to Jesus, that he or the shepherd, that they leave the flock and they go after the sheep, and that it's our responsibility, not just mine as the pastor, but us as believers that when one of us goes astray, walks away, takes a little time out, that we lovingly go find them in order to bring them back. And Jesus today will take us on a similar journey, but a journey that takes a little bit different feel. It's a passage that we've always heard spoken of and it's usually a standalone passage of how to deal with an erring brother. And it's really, really where we get our church discipline from. You know that thing that we always worry about, am I going to get called on the stage and called out of my sin in front of everybody and get embarrassed and then kicked out of the church? Because that's how it's been portrayed and that's how we think about it. But what if that's not quite what he's going after? What if there's a little bit different flair, a little bit different tone, a little bit different feel, especially in light of the passages that we've already been talking about, that Jesus is simply saying, hey, what I want most is restoration. What I want most is to restore relationships. Restoration is our ultimate goal. It's God's ultimate goal, all the way back to the beginning of time. When Adam and Eve goofed up and because of their decisions, they had to be um, moved out of uh, the Garden of Eden. But since then, what was God doing the entire time? Trying to restore that relationship. Hey, let's, let's get this thing back to where it needs to be. Even with all the children of Israel and all of their goof-ups and how they go up and then they're down and they walk away and then they are caught, brought back. They are thrown into exile and God rescues them. He is always trying to restore Then Jesus comes and Jesus says, hey, here's what it looks like. Here's what a relationship with the Father looks like. Here's what relationships with people look like. He is constantly showing us and exemplifying what restoration should look like. And then even after that, God still works in our hearts, striving with us to restore us back to where he once had us. I love that. That is encouraging to me as a follower of God to know that when I think about stepping away, my Father wants me back. But Jesus is going to take it a step further today, and instead of putting the responsibility on the shepherd, now he's going to put the responsibility on the follower. You and me. And so let's get into Matthew 18 and let's dig into this passage of verses 15 through 20, which again, we've always heard separate. But remember the context that we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus saying, hey, let's get back to the childlike faith. Why? Because that's where I want you to be. That's where I want us to be restored to. That's what I wanted in the first place. And by the way, don't stand in the way of that because it's my working that's trying to restore this relationship with that person. So encourage it, don't discourage it. And then he says, in fact, it's so important to me, I want you to understand how important it is to make sure that everybody's staying in the flock. I'll give you an example. You know what it is for a shepherd to go after that one sheep. That's what it's like when a follower steps away and I want them back. And now he says, here's what it looks like. He says, moreover, which simply means there's a lot to this. And he's kind of bringing it to a head here. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. He says, here actually is what's going to happen. He says, if somebody sins against you, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make sure you get your phone out. You pull up Facebook, and you tell everybody first, and then you go talk to them. Or you get your phone out, and you pull out your text messages to all your major friends, and you create this long text strain. You include the offender in it, and you embarrass the fool out of them. Jesus says, if someone sins against you, personal, in between the two of you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. Say it with me alone I love church and I love church people but we really do a bad job at this but you don't understand now and I'm going for wisdom I'm going to talk to this person for wisdom and understanding so I know that are you? if you are that's one thing but that's not what Jesus says Jesus says, if you have an issue with someone who has sinned against you, then you go to them by yourself and handle it. Have a conversation. Does that mean you take your club and you beat them over the head? No. You go in love and in kindness and in gentleness and you say, hey, here's what I see. Here's what you did. Here's how it made me feel. Let's talk about it because with scripture, it doesn't match what you did. And you try to restore them. And Jesus says, if you restore them, if they repent, great, wonderful. Relationships restored. You go on about your business and you don't go back to Facebook and say, here's a problem I had. Here's how I dealt with it. Here's who it is. You don't do that. You let it go. It's done. Verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. (laughs) So again, he says, okay, you've tried the first method. If that doesn't work, let's go to the next section. He says, take one or two people with you, not a group. Not all of the friends that see it the way that you see it. Take one or two people. Now, this one or two people is um, uh, kind of pushing us to the idea of you. take somebody that they are going to have respect for. So let's say it's me and Charlie that's got the issue. I'm going to go get Tim, because I know Charlie respects Tim, and right, now you know what? We'll leave Tim out. We'll go to Jim, because you respect Jim probably a little bit more, because he's a little wiser, a little, little more experienced. Nothing against Tim. Stop doing that. Good grief. So I'm going to go to Jim, and I'm going to say, Jim, we need to go talk to Charlie. And we go to talk to Charlie. Now, Jim is not there to take my side. Jim is not there to take Charlie's side. Jim is there to hear the offense, to hear why it's against Scripture, and Jim is to hear both sides and to help direct the way that it needs to go. That's how it works. But that's not what we do, is it? We find people that's going to see it the way we see it. We find people that are going to side with us and make the other person feel bad. And that's how we try to strong-arm them. Jesus says, no, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's first go in love and see if we can get them to, to repent. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, then go get another person or two that they will respect and listen to, that they, you know has their ear, and let's work with them that way. Gets a little more pointed, though. Verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. (whistles) Yay, happy Mother's Day. (laughs) These are my favorite messages. But listen to what he's saying. First off, I want you to go back up to verse 15, and there's a key word here to help us understand the group of people that we're dealing with. Moreover, if your brother, now this is not just about the guys here, it could be brother or sister, okay? So if there's a fellow believer, is the point here. This is not about people outside the fold, outside living life however they want. We're talking about people who are following God that make a decision contrary to Scripture, and you know it, if you love them, you should go to them and talk to them. That's what we're talking about here. And so Jesus says, talk to them one-on-one. If that doesn't work, take two or three with you. Excuse me, one or two more with you. And if that doesn't work, then come before the church. Bring them up on stage, embarrass the fool out of them, run them out, kick them out. It's not really what it's about. Let's remind ourselves, what is this about? It's about restoration not embarrassment it is about restoring the relationship to where it needs to be not just kicking people out because it's fun and let me tell you something I've been in a lot of churches I've been in church all my life I've never ever once witnessed this and I am thankful it would be painful for me as a preacher to have to do that that is not something I look forward to it's not something I ever want to do I'm not a confrontational guy contrary to what you might think I don't like confrontation. In fact, I will avoid it like the plague. You can ask my team. I will hem and haw around as long as I can until ultimately we just have to have that hard conversation. I just, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's too hard. It hurts too bad. It's too painful. And I don't want to hurt the other person's feelings. Jesus says, this isn't about feelings. This is about their soul. This is about their relationship with me. That's what this is about. This is not about convenience or compromise or or feelings or emotions or opinions. This is about truth being followed. Everybody with me? Like That's how important this is to Jesus. This is not about whether we like the chandeliers or not. This is not about whether we like the chairs or not or the carpet color. This is about... People living contrary to Scripture who claim to be followers of God. That's what we're talking about. And Jesus says, listen, if you've got a brother or sister that messes up, go talk to them. One-on-one, have the conversation. Now, many of us would think, well, that's the preacher's job. No, 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 no. No. Yes and no. It's all of our jobs. Nowhere in here does he signify specifically a position That has to handle this. This is a sister or brother in Christ that is offended. That has sinned. It's all of our responsibility. And he says, if they refuse to hear, treat them as a heathen or a tax collector. That's so loving, isn't it? It's so kind and so gentle. Well, actually it is. The heathen don't know any better. The tax collectors are already hated. And what did Jesus do with the heathen? He died for them. What did Jesus do with the tax collectors? He employed one. He worked with Judas. He sat at their tables and he dined with them. But the biblical fellowship, the true fellowship happens with believers. All he's saying is, hey... You really can't have true biblical fellowship with them because they're not on the same page. But it does mean you should still be kind to them. You should still love them. You should still go after them. They are now your mission field, not a part of the family. Does that make sense? Assuredly, I say to you in verse 18... Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What that's referring to is the things that you follow scripturally are already bound or loosed in heaven. And so it's going to be the same here. Because we're holding ourselves accountable to scripture and to truth. And we're letting go opinions, feelings, and emotions. Listen, I know we always say just follow your heart. Please don't do that. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. You can't trust your own heart. So therefore, if I am coming at you with based on emotions and opinions and thoughts, I am coming at you in the wrong way. I need to come to you in love on truth. Because truth is what restores, not opinions. Verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That is not, I repeat, not a name it and claim it verse. Please do not use that to your advantage. It will not work. This is referring to this context of what is happening right here. Two or three that are addressing an issue, that are standing on truth, that is what will be honored and honored only. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am here in the midst of them. Again, this is referring to the idea of gathering for a common purpose and reason. Don't just assume because you got two or three brothers or sisters together that God's just going to bless whatever you throw out there. It's not what that's referring to. This is talking about going to restore someone in the relationship between you and them, or between them and God. That's what this is referring to. So there's a couple of things we need to define and kind of look at. The first thing is this: who is the you in this? Who is the you? When we look at this, it says in verse 15: if your brother sins against you, who is the you? Well, here are a couple of suggestions of who the you is. The you is you. You're the you. If someone sins against you, if someone hurts your feelings or does something that mars your reputation, that's a sin against you, or is it? We want to think it's about us, but is it really against you, or do you just get your feelings hurt? So we take it a step further. What if it's the flock, a a group of church members, people that are followers of God, the flock? This would be a flock, our church And so they sin against our church. They do something to downgrade our God and our church name. That is something that we, if we know of it, any one of us, have the right, as long as it's scriptural, to go to them and say, hey, here's what we see, what's going on, talk us through this. Do you notice my tone and my language as I'm saying that? Am I saying, hey, you idiot, you just made our church look bad, what's your problem? No. I say, hey, here's what I see. What's going on? Because I know that's not you. That's not the you that I know. I know you've never done that before. And and I know you know the truth. So what's going on? How can we work with you to figure out what's happening here? Big shift in how we address these things. We are so fast in our accusations. We are so fast on our indictments. And we show no grace and mercy the way that Christ has shown us grace and mercy. We need to do a better job, church, of coming alongside our brothers and sisters who we know are not standing in truth and lovingly guide them back through a wonderful confrontation. I don't even like that word. The church as a whole. The church as a whole. People step away from the church all the time and do stuff the way that they do stuff. How much do you love the church? I'm not talking about Townsend. I'm talking about... God's church, the church, it's important. It's vital. It's his people. But ultimately, the sin that is happening, when it says sin against you, we need to completely understand that it is not necessarily against us personally, but it is against God. It's against the Lord. When I sin, yes, it's going to affect my family. It's going to affect my co-workers. It will affect my church. But my sin ultimately is not against them. It is against God. In fact, David says it best. And we'll get to that in a minute. I thought it was next. (laughs) Got ahead of myself. (laughs) And sin has already been defined for us. We live in an age that everybody wants to define sin for us. Well, that's that's not really sin. That's not really that bad. Listen, (laughs) I've been doing this a little while. And I haven't gotten any memos or emails or text messages or new letters or new books from God yet saying, hey, that verse and that chapter, let's change that. Let's soften that a little bit. So if you want, take this new version and throw that in there and strike. I haven't gotten anything like that from him yet. This is the same word that came down from years ago that Jesus specifically spoke on his own that has not changed, will not change, and it cannot change. Therefore, if that is the truth, then that is the truth we must stand on. And sin has already clearly been defined for us. You can go to Romans 12. It's got a nice little list in there. You can go to Galatians 5. It's got a nice little list. In fact, you could probably go from Genesis all the way through and find something in those letters and books that we have to let us know that this is the way to live. This is not the way to live. It's already been defined. Stop trying to play the game and redefine things that... Help us live how we want to live. Jesus has already explained it. God has already outlined it. Here's how I want you. Stay here. It's already been defined. In fact, James nails it for me. James 4, 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Listen, you're not dumb. You know right from wrong. You know the moment that you do something wrong that it's wrong. Instantly. In fact, I know before I do it. I get warm, I get hot, I get anxious. I know before I even make that decision that I'm even entertaining in my mind that it's wrong. I already know because the spirit that lives with inside of me says, please don't enter that into our lives. And when I do, I sin. Can we just call it like it is? Can we stop playing the game and saying, well, it's not that bad? It's sin. Anything against God, anything that is against righteousness and truth, it is sin. And it's wrong. But sin has not only been defined, but it's ultimately against him. It is ultimately against God. Again, I can make bad decisions and do things that aren't necessarily against my wife, but it's going to affect her. And we may have problems and have to work through some things. But ultimately, my decisions and my sin is against God and God alone. Think about the man after God's own heart, which was David. Greatest king that we had for the children of Israel. Just a wonderful, wonderful man. But this dude goofs up. He sleeps with his top soldier's wife. Gets her pregnant. And in order to fix all this, he sends him to the the hottest part of the battle and has him killed. And he kind of floats along for a little while until Nathan comes to him and says, You goofed up. And that's about all he had to say. And David already knew. And he was confronted in love by Nathan and said, You need to make this right. And so David goes and writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he says this. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now wait a second. He had Uriah killed and slept with Uriah's wife. That's some pretty egregious things that I would say is pretty bad. But ultimately, did he break the rule with Uriah? Did he break the rule with Bathsheba? No, he broke God's rule to not sleep with another man's wife. That's against God. It's his decision. He knew what was right and he chose to not do that, and because of that, it is sin against God. So when I read this passage of verse 15 that says, those that have sinned against you, to me, I take it, this is against God. When we read in Revelation that he talks about, hey, you hate those things that those people are doing, and you hate them because I hate them. That's how we should live. If it is sin and God hates it, guess what? You should hate it too. You should get to the place where it just turns your stomach the way that it Turns God's stomach. If it is sin, it is wrong and we should avoid it like the plague. And those decisions that we make are against God. But God is so good. And he is so gracious and kind. His goal is always restoration. It doesn't matter what you have done. God is constantly seeking us for restoration in our relationship. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what you did this morning on the way in. God is always in the restorative work business. He is looking for every opportunity that he can take. To restore your relationship. The question is, are you willing to hear someone holding you accountable? Because that's hard for us. This goal that God has, again, I remind you, has been all the way back since Adam and Eve. The moment that they had to walk out of the garden, he was already trying to restore that relationship to bring it back in right standing. He did it all the way through with the children of Israel. And God knows the right moment for those things to take place. Do you know why? Because he's God. He's got a little more experience than you do and than I do. And if God moves within your heart to go and talk to somebody, to have that hard conversation with somebody, it probably is him saying, now's the time doesn't matter how awkward it's going to make you feel or what it's going to do to the other person because I, God, am already in it. I just need you to be the mouth. So when we look at the word restored and try to define it, there's lots of definitions on this, but these three um, apply to what we're talking about. The first thing is this, is to bring back into existence, use, or the like, to reestablish. So when we make bad decisions, let's say I make a bad decision with my wife, and it causes that little rift in our relationship. We're not divorced, we're not breaking up, we're not separating, but you know it's there. Am I the only one? Okay, I'm just making sure. Like, I was feeling really lonely right there. But you know it's there. And restoration means my goal, my sole purpose, is to do whatever is necessary to bring that relationship back to where it needs to be. That's what restoration is. And if you want to think about like a building or a statue, that's what the next verse comes to. And it helps us kind of understand and and visualize what that looks like. It's to bring back to a former, original, or normal condition as a building, statue, or painting. So you've got a building, a house, that is just run down and you want to restore it. You want to bring it back to its natural beauty. Bring it back to a usable state. You've got a statue where birds have... And so you want it to look like it used to, right? And so you clean it up. You restore it back. To what it needs to look like. God has created us to have relationship with him. To live in righteousness and in holiness. And he is constantly working with us to restore us to that place. It's a work in progress. And then lastly, to bring back to a state of health, soundness, or vigor. You ever been around somebody that has just kind of stepped away, took a little break, and it's just you can just see it on them? They're just wearing the effects of being out of the goodness of God. Do you not want to help them? Do you not want to drag them back in, beg them back in, do whatever is necessary to get them back to be able to experience the the vigor and the energy and the passion of Jesus living within them? Oh, but Alan, what, what if I hurt their feelings? What if my friendship dissolves because they don't see it the way I see it and they leave? Let me ask you a question. What's more important to you Your feelings and emotion and relationship or the soul of your friend. You see, that's not how our world teaches us to think. But the reality is, Jesus says, hey, put the relationship on the line and go to that person in love in hopes to restore them back to the relationship they need to be in. Listen, when Charlie and I, if we have a difference of opinion... It'll go for about an hour before we meet up and have a hard conversation. Is that true? Do you know why that is? Because I don't like that feeling. I don't like that uncomfortable, awkward, something's just not right feeling. And it will eat at me until I am able to sit down and talk it through. Why is that not important to us as believers? To make sure that we as believers are on the same page, on the same team, heading in the same direction for the same goal. That is to restore everybody that we can to a right relationship with God. But we can't even do that if we can't even restore our own personal relationships. And God has already modeled it for us. He sent Jesus to model for us what love and kindness and gentleness looks like. To be able to restore relationships. Psalm 51, again, same passage that David was talking about here. He knows that his relationship with God is broken. But he also understands that when he can own his own sin, there is a restorative work that takes place that cannot be done by anybody else. He says to God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bring back my energy, my life, my joy from when I was in tune with you. I broke that. My sin was against you, but you alone are the one that can restore it, and I'm coming to you for that help. And hold me up by your generous spirit. Here's what restoration does not mean. Especially in this context, it is not meant for embarrassment. It is never my goal if I have to have a hard conversation with somebody to make sure that I am putting them up here, talking about them, embarrassing them, making sure that they just know that they're in the wrong. It's never the goal, ever. Never should it be the goal if I'm going to talk to somebody about a subject is to embarrass them or to make them feel bad. That's that's not the goal. Now, if they feel bad on their own, yay God, because you should feel bad when you sin. But that's not my job. That's the Spirit's job. Nor is this type of restoration meant for gossip. It is not meant for me the moment I know that I need to go have a conversation with somebody that I go talk to 50 people before I go talk to them. Please stop doing that. That's the wonderful portion of church because we are so good at that. Stop doing it. That's not what Jesus calls for. What did Jesus say? Go to him and him alone. Don't go talk to everybody else. Spend some time in prayer. And if you are going to seek for wisdom, make sure that's really what you're going to seek. Not trying to just throw somebody under the bus. Please don't use it as leverage. Restoration and confrontation is not meant for leverage. Meaning, here's what I need, and I have dirt on you. We would never, ever do that. Yeah, we would. Please be careful with this. This is a delicate topic that needs to be dealt with love and compassion. This is a a brother and sister that is just not in a, a safe spot yet right now. And your job is not to push them further away or kick them while they're down, but to lovingly walk with them back into the right relationship with God. It's not about elitism either. We As believers, get real quick on the high and mighty when we find somebody else that we thought was way up here and now they're doing this stuff, so I I must be doing pretty good. Please be careful of that. That's not what restoration is about. It's not for me to hold it over their head, to use it for leverage, or to make them feel less than. I'm there to encourage and to build up and to restore. But then lastly, it's not for compromise either. (laughs) This is an important one for me. Because so many times when we go and have these restorative conversations, we compromise truth for the sake of feelings. I am just as guilty as everybody else with this because I don't like to hurt people's feelings. I know that might be, again, contrary to what you might think, but I really don't like to do that. It's never my goal. But I've gotten to the place where your soul... Your spiritual well-being, your relationship with God is more important to me than your feelings towards me. I can deal with a black eye for a while. But you not being in right relationship with God, that bothers me. And it should bother you if I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And you should not worry about, oh, it's the pastor, I can Dude, listen, let me tell you. I'll be the first to tell you I am just a man just like everybody else in here. You can come talk to me. You can hold me accountable. That's your job. Just do it nicely and do it with love. Because if you don't, that'll be a little different conversation. Proverbs 27, 5 through 6. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. If I love Charlie the way that I... Tell him that I do. Me rebuking him one-on-one shows that I love him. Rather than just coming alongside him and saying, you know what? It's all good, Charlie. You just keep doing what you're doing. Because I love you. Open rebuke is far better than love concealed. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. than the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I want you to notice something about that last part, verse 6. The wounds of a friend. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. Our pride is going to be damaged. Because we're all prideful people. And to be called out on our mess to be exposed for what we thought was right, only to find out that we knew it was wrong all along, that hurts. Amen? Nobody likes that. That's not fun. That's not enjoyable. I don't like that. I don't like to be called out, and especially in front of a group of people. Please don't do that with me. Pull me aside. And then have at it. But don't do it in front of a group of people. That's not scriptural. Now, if I refuse you, then you can. But listen, the wounds of a friend, of a faithful friend, are welcomed. If it takes you hurting me a little bit to where I can right my relationship with God... I'm willing to risk my friendship with you to do that. Isn't that scary? But Alan, they're they're my friends. I've been around them forever. Here's my thought. I love being around them forever, and I would like to continue that in eternity. And if that means I may have a little separation while I'm here on this earth, then guess what? I'll take that chance. I'll take that chance. Here's what restoration should be. It should absolutely be soft. It should be kind. Micah 6.8, love being kind. It should be soft. Soft does not mean weak. Soft means you care. You have a little bit of empathy to what they're going through. And by the way, you could be at that moment at any given time. So be careful. Come at them soft. Don't come at them at all. Come to them. It should be non-threatening. Now I... For me, this is where I have to really wrestle because I get very passionate and I get anxious about having these hard conversations because I never know what the reaction is going to be. And so I have to come prepared mentally and emotionally because if I don't, I can become threatening because my energy will rise. Ask my team. We all do that. Thank you, Charlie. I appreciate that. It's what happens. And so if I can come in knowing that, okay, this is going to be a heightened confrontational type conversation. Do you know what I do first? I go pray and honestly tell him, "God, you know what's going to happen. Like I you have to watch me here. I need to trust you. Because I don't want to be threatened. This isn't about me. This is about this relationship either between me and them or between them and God that is broken and I want it fixed. Why? Because I love them and I'm concerned for them. Not because I want to hold it over their head and beat them down. I want them to be in right relationship with God. Not only that, but it's got to be honest. It's got to be honest. You can't shy away from this. It must be honest. You can't make it up because it's how you feel. It's got to be truthful. And it's got to be honest. Listen, so many times people try to share things with me and they, they, I can tell they're just kind of dancing around because that irritates me. Just tell me. Like, I I don't read between the lines very well. I'm a very black and white kind of guy when it comes to this kind of stuff. If I'm doing something wrong, be specific. Just tell me. And so that's the honesty that I need. But not everybody works that way. But honesty in a way that speaks truth is what we all need to hear. But not only that, but it should be private. Again, I, I told you... I. Don't call me out in a group of people. That's embarrassing to me. Seriously, I I get so embarrassed. I don't even know what to say in those moments. Pull me aside. You can chew on my ear all day if you pull me aside. I'm okay with that. I'm a big boy. I'll I'll handle it somehow. And so if I'm coming to you, guess what? I'm not going to do it in front of everybody. I'm going to schedule a meeting or I'm going to call you up and talk on the phone or I'm going to come to your house or I'm just going to pull you aside and have just an honest conversation. Do you know why I want to do that? because I love you I want the best for you I want you to experience everything that you're not experiencing because of this broken relationship Galatians chapter 6 love this verse says brethren if a man is overtaken in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of what there's no hammer involved on that one right Spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. In other words, reminding yourself that at any given point in time, you could be right where that person is. So come at it gently. And then look what it says bear one another's burdens, walk with them. Don't hit them over the head and run. Stay there. Walk them back to this restoration or through this restoration process. And that way we fulfill the law of Christ. So here's the game plan. Game plan A is this. You confront. You confront in love. You go to them in love and you share the truth. Not your opinion or what you think. But truth. And convey to them that's not what you're seeing. But do it in a way that they don't feel threatened. But at least it gets the honesty of the point across. Now, they might repent And the relationship is restored and all is said and done. Again, it doesn't give you permission to go back on Facebook and promote it and say, hey, here's what I did, here's what happened, here's how it took place. It's not what it's talking about. Nowhere in there does it say to go back and brag about it or talk about it. It says, if it's restored, done. You move on. You don't bring it up. You don't hold it over their head. You celebrate and you move on because God gets the victory right then. Now, it may be that they refuse. It may be that they say, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue. That takes us to plan B. Plan B is this. We confront in love with one or two more. Now that does not mean you go find your bestest friends that are going to stand on your side. You go find people that you know they're going to listen to. That you know that they have an ear with. So for instance, if I'm having a a problem with uh, Tim... I'm going to go to Charlie because I know Tim listens to Charlie. He hears Charlie. And so I'm going to go get Charlie, not because I think Charlie's going to stand on my side, but because I know Charlie is a man of wisdom and truth, and I know that he will discern between the two discussions what is right and what is best. And so we go to Tim, and we say, Tim, here's what we see. Here's what I see. Tim shares what he sees. I give my scripture reference. Charlie listens, and we Talk about it in order for restoration. And if Tim repents because of that, relationships restored, we let it go, we move on, life goes on happy every after. Which is really where we want to stop, right? Hopefully we don't even get to this. And by the way... Who is this with, by the way? This is within the church, within the flock, within believers. If we have our childlike faith and we are mature, if someone comes and confronts me, my heart should be tender enough and open to the Spirit of God to say, you know what, you're right. And it's done. But Jesus says, it doesn't always work that way. And so if it doesn't work that way, bring a couple of people. And if it doesn't work that way, then let's go to plan C. Take it before the church. Now let's define church. The church could be the congregation as a whole. Doesn't that sound like fun? How about we spend one whole congregational meeting just outlining people that we know are not living correctly. Bring them up on the stage and just have it out. Who's up? Exactly. CJ, you're coming? Great. CJ's going to join me. Bad idea, CJ. That's not, that's not really what we're looking for. Now, a lot of churches believe that's exactly what it's teaching, and it is to some degree. I believe it's a little bit different. I believe it's talking about a group of leaders. Now, we have a group of leaders here that are outstanding, superb. We have chosen them for a reason. They are the heads of our ministry. They're our teachers. They're our deacons. And that is a group that we call the Summit Leadership, or the Leadership Summit. And we used to meet quarterly, but because of COVID, we haven't met in a while. But that to me is about 30 to 50 people that I would consider the general congregational feel of our church. And that is where I would most likely take the offense. And I would bring the person up and we would have an honest discussion. Both would be able to talk. And the church would give the decision. It could also mean just a smaller group of authority. It could be we just take it before the deacons. It could be that we pick strategic leaders in our church that we know are full of wisdom and discernment. And those are the group of people. So it could be any of those three. It's really what our church decides to do. But the idea is you bring them before the church and you hold hold them accountable. So if they repent, restoration is taking place, we're good, we move on and we're done. Amen? That's what we want. We don't want to get this far, but if it does and they repent, then we have restored that relationship and we are good. But Jesus, man, makes it tough on us, honestly. He says, if they don't, you treat them as if they were never a believer to begin with. In other words, you're not kicking them out of the church, but now they become as if they were not saved and you just work with them as if you would work with anybody else. But the biblical fellowship just is not there anymore now that seems softer than what i've heard in the past but to me this is more realistic this is we would be foolish as a church to just kick people out because we don't want to work with them that's not what jesus did listen jesus knew judas was going to betray him three years how long do you work with judas three years he didn't kick him out he worked with him. So we're not going to kick you out of the church. We're going to hold you accountable. Now here's what has happened in the past for us. We've had some tough conversations. It usually starts with me and I will go to that person and have the conversation. Then a lot of times it'll be me and Charlie that will go and, and have that conversation. And normally before it gets to bringing it before the church, the person removes themselves from our fold. Nothing we can do about that. We have done what we believe is right. We've stood on truth. We have Um, gone to them in love, had a wonderful, civil conversation. We just did not see eye to eye, and people move on. Now, I will be honest, that's not my goal. I don't want people to move on, because nothing's been dealt with. But it happens. It happens. And it's sad, and it hurts. But I have to remind myself, what is the goal here? The goal ultimately is restoration. Not restoration between me and them, but them and God. And if we see something, truth that is not being followed, truth that is not being stood on, we have a spiritual responsibility to God to go to them in love and say, Hey, something's missing here. What's going on? There are two guiding principles in all of this that I see. Two guiding principles. One is the word, the scripture. That's where everything is defined for us. It is not about how I feel in the moment, what is uh, easy for me, what is convenient for me, but what is clearly defined right here, how I should live. This is our guiding principle, folks. There's nothing else on this planet that can guide us into truth like this can. Nothing. And if we are bringing extras in, you're missing the whole point and the boat. It is Scripture and Scripture alone that brings restoration. And then we use the Holy Spirit who guides us. You know what's great about him? He's kind of smart. He kind of knows things a little bit more than we do and kind of sees a little bit further than we see and a little deeper than we see and kind of accomplishes things a little bit differently than we would where we want to drop the hammer, he'll come in with love. What if, I mean this is a crazy thought, What if we lived by the Spirit of God? Now, you're looking at me like, that's not a crazy thought. We talk about this all the time, right? We do. And I I say that tongue-in-cheek because we can repeat it, we can amend it, we can believe it, but we won't follow it. How do we expect anybody outside of this church to trust us if we won't even trust the very spirit that we claim that we're following. We have a responsibility in all of this. It's to know the truth and to follow the spirit because it is the spirit that will bring restoration through his word. James 5, 19, again, James does such a great job with this. He says, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, talking about brothers and sisters here, Wandering meaning, I'm just going to kind of step away on this one. I don't really like how this feels. I don't like what that says. They wander from the truth and someone turns him back. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James summarizes everything to me Jesus just said. Jesus gave us the outline of how to do it. James says, Your responsibility as a brother or sister in Christ, if you see one of your brothers and sisters in Christ wandering away, go to them in love and bring them back. Kind of like the shepherd does with the sheep. This is not a standalone passage. This passage falls right in line with everything that Jesus has been talking about over the last 20 verses. And James summarizes it and says, hey, if you see it, address it. But address it correctly because it is about their soul, not their feelings. Restoration is the ultimate goal. That's what all of this is about. From the beginning of time, God has been completely coming after us, trying to restore the relationship that was once broken. As the praise team comes, I want to, ask you three questions this morning and I want to kind of ask the questions under this idea if restoration truly is the goal if if our goal which should be our goal is to restore if that is our ultimate goal here's the first question I have for you are you in a position to address concerns and here's what I mean by that is your own heart connected with God are you even able to hear the Spirit of God, or are you going just based off your emotions and feelings? Christianity is not based on emotions and feelings. They help, but Christianity is based on trust and faith. And can you, in right now in the spot that you're in, be in a position to address someone else? If not, today's your day then. I will address you in love. Let's get our hearts right. Let's put ourselves in a position that we can lovingly come alongside each one of us and say, Hey, here's what I see. Here's what you're doing well. Here's what you're not doing well. What can I do to help you? Are you in a position that you can address concerns? Here's the second thing Are you willing to do that? I don't like it, (laughs) but I'm willing to do it. And my team knows that, which is why I usually get voted to do it. It's not my favorite. I don't like hurting people's feelings. I don't like confrontation. I don't like all the emotions that come with it. I don't like the feeling that I get when I have to do it. However, I love you enough that I am willing to put my feelings and my relationship with you on the line if it turns both our hearts to Christ. I can't be the only one doing that, though. We all must be willing to... To lovingly come beside each other and say, Hey, I saw what you posted on Facebook. Do you really think that's conducive to a Christian life? Do you think that respects our church and the Lord? Hey, I saw where you were at the other night. Hey, I saw who you were with the other night. Hey, I saw what you were doing the other night. Do you really think that's what God wants for us? Can we talk about it? Do you feel the softness and the sincere desire to restore and to fix and to help? That's how it should be. But here's really the question I want to ask all of us. Are you willing to hear the concerns regarding your life? Can I just tell you, it is so hard. Back when COVID really hit, I was a little stressed, because I didn't know what in the world was happening, what we needed to do church-wise, and my stress and anxiety grew, and it made me mean. I I was able to just pipe off a little quicker, and my team was very gracious, they understood, but it it just wasn't right. And I had a a faithful friend come to me and say, Alan, you're mean. He didn't say it like that, but that's basically for the sake of the discussion right now. Let me tell you, man, that hurt. If I could have reached across the table and and grabbed them by the throat, I'd have been quite pleased with myself. But you know why I didn't? Because the person that confronted me I knew loved me, number one. But I already knew it deep within my heart. And the wound of that faithful friend allowed me to restore not only my relationship with my team, but with my family and with my Lord. Man, it hurt. It was embarrassing. It was awful. It was painful. I did not like it. But man, I appreciated it afterwards. It forced me into a internal counsel session with me and God to say what's going on why am I this way what do I need to do and he guided me in a nice little path that put me in a different place and that friend was willing to put our relationship on the line because he was concerned about my heart That's what we're talking about here, folks. We're not talking about bringing people up for the sake of embarrassing. We're talking about people's souls and restoring their relationship with God. So can you do that? Can you be willing to lovingly confront someone? And can you be willing to lovingly receive it today?